Thank you for listening to Weekly Wisdom, the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This episode is a sermon by Reverend Marvin Lindsay titled, Where Do You Get That Living Water? It's based on Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, as recorded in John 4. None of those uh, pithy little statements by Jesus that illustrate a spiritual truth. Instead, you find Jesus giving long speeches, or you find Jesus uh, engrossed in long conversations with conversation partners. And often these monologues or dialogues give you the distinct impression that Jesus is playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. Jesus is like talking like way up here, and his conversation partners are way down here. For instance, in last week's scripture reading, uh, Jesus talks to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the religious teacher, about his need for rebirth and renewal, and Nicodemus thinks he's talking to a quack obstetrician. Like, well, I, you know, I was eight pounds, four ounces when I was born, and now I'm 190 pounds. How can I be born again? There's just, you know, and, and mom's dead anyway. I, how, how is this going to happen? Jesus today says to the Samaritan woman at the well, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask him for living water, and he'd give it to you. And that phrase, living water, which in the original language can mean flowing water or running water, has the Samaritan woman dreaming of indoor plumbing. But Jesus is a carpenter's son. He's not a plumber's son. And when the disciples return and find that Jesus has lost his appetite, they ask themselves, well, uh, did he call out for Uber Eats while we went to Wawa to get some hoagies? Um, I said hoagies, okay? I didn't say subs. Come on. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Lee. And Jesus exasperated says, you blockheads. I, I, well, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically. I find my work fulfilling, okay? Just... These people that Jesus has come to save are as dumb as a bag of hammers. And we are too. We are dumb as a bag of hammers. Because we don't get it any more than they do. Uh, When we read the Bible, sometimes we want to identify with Jesus. We want to identify with the hero of the story. Uh, But there's the, uh, well he's deceased now, a New Testament scholar named Walter Wink that says if we're looking for transformation from the pages of Scripture, then we don't need to identify with Jesus. We need to identify with the other characters in the story. The characters who are hostile to Jesus' message. Or who fail to understand what he's talking about. Or the people who are in need of his healing, his reconciling power, his forgiveness. Nicodemus and the disciples and the unnamed woman at the well they are like a mirror reflecting ourselves back to us. Because we, like they, are a little too concrete in our thinking. Perhaps because we are a little too preoccupied with the material and the mundane and practical affairs of living. The woman longs to be freed from the drudgery of hauling water from the well. And I can't blame her as someone who has indoor plumbing. But we're also aware that Having indoor plumbing doesn't make your life completely free of tedium or drudgery or boredom. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, 
was so in the dark about his own need for enlightenment that he heard Jesus' call for rebirth and renewal in crudely literalistic terms. The disciples are fretting because they think that someone has upstaged them. They want to satisfy Jesus' appetite. They want to spread a table for their hungry rabbi's needs. And someone has done it more quickly and efficiently than they have. Oh my goodness. Are we going to get fired? And so we too, when we become wrapped up and obsessed about the kind of petty tasks, the tedious conflicts, career advancement, climbing the ladder, keeping up with the Joneses, we can take on the characteristics of the people in John's Gospel. We become in danger of winning life's battles only to lose the war. We might reach the summit of worldly achievement only to be cut down in the next world. Our mortal bodies are animated by God's life-giving spirit. But if we spend all our time serving the material, what will become of that part of us that is spiritual, that is soulful, that is immaterial? To cite a parable, that form of communication that again is not in John's Gospel, many of us are like fields choked with weeds. And just as weeds can outcompete good seed that a farmer might sow in the field, so too our lives, when we are completely focused on the cares of daily living and the accumulation of money and fame and power, our lives, they don't have any space for the Word of God to grow and to bear fruit. We become unfruitful and unproductive in the only sense that God really cares about fruitfulness and productivity, and that is in love. In peace, in kindness, in self-control. And that is a kind of living death. In his time among us, the Son of God fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he even brought the dead to life, and he reconciled outcasts to neighbors and to society. He improved the quality of life for many, and he increased the quantity of days for still others. And he has even greater gifts to give than these. Jesus Christ is God's gift of eternal life to all of us. He quenches a thirst in us deeper than that for even food and drink and freedom from drudgery. He quenches that thirst to be freed from the clutches of the enemy who comes for each of us and who cuts all of our days short, regardless of how much we accumulate in these few days that we spend on this earth. Jesus Christ is a spring of living water that gushes up to eternal life. And we who are hungry for meaning, for lives that matter, and we who try to fill that hunger for meaning and for living lives that matter with the junk food of wealth or prominence or influence, we are gathered together by Him who hungers most to gather us into the eternal presence of God. And when Christ gathers us in, we find that our lives really do matter. Not because of what we've amassed for ourselves or what we've accomplished or for the accolades that we receive from others, but simply because of who we are and whose we are. In Christ, we are beloved children of God, loved for our own sakes and not for anything that we do. In Christ Jesus, our lives matter forever. They matter long after everyone who has ever known us will vanish from the surface of this earth. 
They matter long after our tombstones fade and fall over. They matter long after the stars burn out and the universe grows cold and silent. Because our lives matter to God, who is eternal. So how does Jesus get through to these people with this message of eternal living water and eternal renewal? How does he get through to us? Well, it's unclear, as I think Nikki pointed out last week, whether he ever gets through to Nicodemus or not. And so that's a warning for religious leaders in every time and place, that sometimes we can handle holy truths in a way that we are left untouched by them. Nicodemus is kind of a, a cautionary tale for everyone who's ever worn a robe or stood in the pulpit or presided at the table. But he does get through to the woman at the well. Go! Call your husband, Jesus says to the woman. And the woman says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband. True words have never been said. And so she thinks and says, you're some kind of a prophet, right? One of these, like, guru people, right? Who can kind of see through walls and such. Now, there's two ways to interpret this exchange. The traditional way is the male way, because it's been a whole lot of men who have been doing the traditional interpreting, is to see the Samaritan woman at the well as kind of like the Liz Taylor of the Bible. Okay? And Jesus, without harshness or judgment, compels her to acknowledge her licentious ways. Jesus sees through her but he accepts her nonetheless. And her truthful acceptance, his truthful acceptance of her, is what makes her a disciple of him. Now, more recent scholarship has called this line of interpretation into question because more recently we have more scholars and preachers among us who are women, not just men. And what they have pointed out to pastors, both male and female, is that neither Jewish nor Samaritan women could sue for divorce in the first century. So this woman might have been married to a series of sickly husbands. You know, we don't know. And the one that she's presently living with might be a male relative, a cousin, a brother, uh, an uncle. Not her Eddie Fisher or Richard Burton, okay? Uh, millennials, Eddie Fisher is Princess Leia's dad, okay? <laughs> And if you don't know who Richard Burton is, just grab a baby boomer after worship and they'll tell you all about Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. If this is the case, then she simply becomes a disciple because of his, his clairvoyant power. He knows all about her. He should know about her, but he knows all about her. I'm not a stranger who knows me from cover to cover, she says to her neighbors. He can't be the Messiah, can he? That's not exactly the Apostles' Creed, is it? Which we're going to recite after the sermon is over. It's not exactly a, a ringing and compelling confession of faith. But it is enough to interest her neighbors in Jesus. Who, by the way, don't seem as suspicious of her testimony as they might seem, or we would expect, if she were really the village fixer. And the result is that many of her neighbors come to faith in Jesus Christ as the one that God has said, has sent to put right everything that is wrong. As the one whom God has sent to defeat death itself. The last 
and the greatest enemy of all that lives in this universe. So whether she's the village vixen or a victim of circumstance, Jesus seems to know this woman as well as, if not better, than she knows herself. And I think that each of us longs for that kind of intimacy, to be known deeply and fully and loved nonetheless, despite the wrongs that we have done, the sins we've committed, the wounds we have inflicted, the wounds that have been inflicted on us, wounds that we still walk around with because they are lacking in healing, the pain of which we no longer notice because it's become like the psychic background noise to our lives. Jesus sees it all. And on the cross, he stretches out his arms to gather us, warts and all, to his loving, eternal presence. In his loving embrace, everything is brought to light and everything is borne away. We are made new creatures. With these burdens lifted, we can now live lives that are unencumbered by guilt, by shame, by resentment, and by regret. In other words, you don't have to die to experience the eternal life that Jesus Christ offers us. When we are in Christ, eternal life begins today. And because eternal life is ours, we no longer need to fear death or be in denial about the possibility of our own dying. In 2006, I went to Israel and Palestine with a group of Protestant ministers. It was a uh, trip that was sponsored by Columbia Theological Seminary. And we stayed several days in Tiberias, which is a city that lies along the Sea of Galilee, and saw holy sites in that area. And after that, we drove south, paralleling the course of the Jordan River, and left the greenish grass of Galilee. It was May. It was already starting to turn yellow from uh, moving from the rainy season into the dry season. And we drove down and down and down to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the planet Earth. And that evening, one of my colleagues who was with me on the trip led Vespers. And reflecting on that journey from the Jordan River to the Dead Sea, she incorporated into her talk a quote from the late minister William Sloan Coffin. He says, In the Holy Land are two ancient bodies of water. Both are fed by the Jordan River. In one, fish play and roots find sustenance. In the other, there is no splash of fish, no sound of bird, no leaf around. The difference is not in the Jordan, for it empties into both, but in the Sea of Galilee, for every drop taken in one goes out the other. The Sea of Galilee gives, and it lives. The other gives nothing, and it is called the Dead Sea. The woman told her neighbors about Jesus Christ, and they came to him and received from him that living water he gave her. Living water, again, in the original language, it means flowing water. Eternal life wants to flow from the one whose heart has been watered by it to the ones who are still thirsting for that water. 
to let it flow. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to go door to door giving tracts out to strangers. You don't have to have all the answers. The Samaritan woman told those who were closest to her, and her testimony lacked sophistication and certainty. But it was effective. So ask yourself, who is Jesus Christ for you? Who is Jesus Christ for you? And ask Christ to give you an opportunity to tell someone close to you about your imperfect and unsophisticated understanding of him. The living Christ will take it from there, and the thirsty will drink and will be satisfied. In the name of the one who is and who was and who is to come, amen. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.